HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by HH Bespoke Spirits, a fashionable portfolio of unique spirits, including bespoke gin, rum, and vodka, inspired by the rich cultural history and distinctive style of the Harlem Renaissance. Learn more at hhbespokespirits.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times, it's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely, and this is Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. It's a very special show. Our good friend Tom Acatelli has written another book about beer. His first one, The Audacity of Hops, for me, captured the, the origin story of craft beer in America. And now he's come back way back to 1600s or 1800s, talking about the origins and the rise of Pilsner in the world and in America. Um, so, Tom, let, let's just start talking with you. Just introduce yourself and just tell us about how this book project started. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. The book is Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World, and it's exactly what the title sounds like. I, I used to write quite a bit about craft beer and the origins of, of microbrewing or craft beer, or whatever it's called now, but I wanted to see what predated it, what, what laid the groundwork, what set up the need for such a, a terrific counter-reaction that craft beer has been to macro brewing. And I found that in the history of Pilsner, which is the remains the dominant beer style in the world and sort of caused the is, is sort of the the big bang for the beer universe we're living in now. Without the rise of Pilsner beginning in the 1840s and the conditions that led to that rise, we wouldn't have the beer marketplace that we do now. And that's what I wanted to get at. And that's what the book is all about and how Pilsner intersects with so many different things, not only in brewing and brewing technology and beer, but in the world at large and how it caused, helped cause the craft beer movement. Well, Tom, it, it's a it's a really great book. I'm I'm fairly early in the book, but I'm up to about 1845. So I'm I'm definitely looking forward to reading the whole book, and it's been one of the more enjoyable beer history books I've read in a while. And let's introduce. So Chris Loring, uh, introduce yourself and tell us your connection to pilsners and lagers. Uh, Chris Loring, uh, founder head brewer of Notch Brewing in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, soon second location in Boston. Uh, affiliation to Pilsner. I, I've been a professional brewer since 93 and I always brewed British ales. And then in 2005, I went to the Czech Republic uh, and visited Prague and Pilsen. And that just was an epiphany. And I never looked back. And um, that started my whole, you know, uh, 
career of really getting deep into lager and pilsner in particular. It was just they just had that moment. I think everyone, every brewer has that drinking moment where they have something and they say, "Wow, this is something, something totally unique and special." Well, one of the most special brewery taproom visits I did, I visited you about four or five years ago. We did an episode of Beer Sessions Radio, and it was so great. You, you had how many taps do you have dedicated to to the Czech style pour? Uh, we have four of the Lucre side pull um, faucets, and we only put Czech lager through it. We won't put anything else through it. And we typically have all four filled at all times. That's great. That was a very special experience. And uh, our other friend from Three's Brewing, you know, in, in this, the rise of craft beer, uh, it took a while for, for there to be a good pills in New York City. And one of the first really good pills I had in New York City was from Three's Brewing, the Vleet. Matt, will you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, Matt Levy, uh, head brewer of Three's Brewing, um, Brooklyn, New York. Um, you know, Pilsner is, um, it's, it's an ongoing uh, exploration for me. And, you know, I've been brewing professionally for 10 years. Um, and my brewing career actually started at Jolly Pumpkin. And I was really into kind of these like subtle but wild things. Um, but, uh, you know, working at Peekskill Brewery and, and actually Vleet was the beer that got me into Pilsner, which is, which is kind of interesting. And I, I wanted to work at Threes because of that beer. Uh, I wanted to make that beer and then I wanted to dive deep into kind of restrained brewing. And uh, Vleet is actually kind of our, our like, you know, most robust, hoppiest lagers. And we continuously keep stripping things back. And it's something that I'm, I'm really excited about. But we, you know, last fall I visited Bamberg and Czech Republic and had, you know, another one of those, those incredible moments. Um, and, you know, just like Chris is saying, like, it's, it's, um, it's, it's been uh, kind of fascinating getting into them. But, um, I mean, I, I feel like my interest in them could apply to really any style. It's, it's more of an approach to brewing rather than an affinity for a particular style. Pilsner just happens to taste better, you know. That's great. Styles. So that's a great introduction. Now we'll go back to Tom. So Tom, you know, my first question for a, an author whose book I like is tell us about researching the book because you cut through a lot of myths. You know, there, there were some myths about monks stealing yeast and bringing it back. You know, so how, how were you researching the book? And tell us about a few of those myths that, that you were able to break through. Well, a lot of the research had to do with going back to, to some primary sources, and I was very lucky in that regard because Evan Rail, a beer writer, American beer writer who lives in Prague, he translated a lot of the early documents uh, relating to the first producer of Pilsner in Pilsen in present-day Chechia. Uh, so I, I had that at my disposal. There, there's fantastic troves of research at the larger breweries in the United States, such as you know, uh, Anheuser-Busch, Miller. And there's a lot of places that preserve, you know, the correspondence and uh, the, the recipes in some cases and the back and forth between brewers in the 19th century. I'm thinking of the American Brewery Anna Association. Uh, so that was a big help just to have the information there and in many cases already collated. So as far as some of the myths, it gets kind of real fun, you know, like beer throws up a lot of um, a lot of legend. You know, people are very passionate about it and stuff gets 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 uh, embellished in retellings. One of the, my favorite myths was that the yeast for the original Pilsner was smuggled over the border from uh, Bavaria into the Austrian Empire, into Pilsen, by a monk who wouldn't be questioned by authorities because he was moving between two heavily Catholic countries. But that's, that's uh, uh, very much a myth. Um, also, one of the things that struck me early on and, and sort of got me excited about the project was that the brewing, I mean, we often think of Pilsner as the first, you know, golden or light, light colored beer, beer that looks like sunshine or something. And, it, and while that's the case, it was the first really bright beer. There were plenty of lighter colored beers then. And the, as early as, you know, going back to the turn of the uh, um, 18th to 19th century. So there's sort of this myth that, you know, Pilsner is the first light colored beer and everything else was these dark, uh, milky, uh, murky ales you couldn't see through. And that's just not the case. Pale ale had been around for decades. There were amber ales. There was the Vienna lager, which was developed around the same time. So, 
Well, that's great, man. Um, you know, in terms of the history as well, like, let's go way back. Like, you know, beer forever was lager. I mean, excuse me, ales, right? And it was, what, top fermented? It was hard. It was easy to make. I'm going backwards. It was easy to make. And people were making it for, for thousands of years. When and where did someone figure out this bottom fermented lager? And then I, I can have the brewers jump in about the difference in brewing from their perspectives as well. Yeah, I was going to say, Chris and Matt can probably talk uh, much more about the science behind it and the technique behind it. But basically, yes, for, for millennia, starting in, in present the mountains of present-day uh, Iran, uh, people have been brewing beer, and it was basically what we now today call ale. And it was largely by accident that, that it was largely by accident of science that it became ale because of the yeast that works that can ferment and work through ale uh, can, can basically ferment it at warmer temperatures, right? So something, uh, uh, a brew left out overnight or for a while will eventually start fermenting with just the yeast around it. The, what, the, the sort of uh, big jump that occurred with lager is that the yeast is bottom fermenting, right? And it was all poorly misunderstood for a, for a long, long time. And it was, the, it was the Germans and the Czechs. We don't know exactly who. By the mid-19th century, they were making lagers consistently. And that's one of the reasons, and the Germans especially were doing this, and Bavarians especially among the Germans. And this is, one of the, this is the main thing that spurred the innovation over the border in Bohemia with Pilsen. The, 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 the burgers of Pilsen, the sort of the town elders who had the right to brew beer and to sell beer locally, were nervous. They were nervous about these Bavarian interlopers with their fantastic, crisp, lighter tasting, lighter colored lagers. And they wanted in on the action. And so they built their own brewery. And lo and behold, that's where we got Pilsner. And it's, it's a great story. And it's in your book. Um, let's, ask, let's ask Matt or Chris. Have either of you really looked into the, the history of, of Pilsner? And in particular, like, if we didn't have Louis Pasteur, you didn't know what yeast was, how do you think that, whether it was in the 1600s, that, that German or Czech brewer somehow figured out that beer would ferment differently in, in the cold cellar? I mean, does anyone have any, any thoughts about that? Some weird origin story. Chris, you want to you want to take this or <laughs> not really? All, yeah, I know, right? Uh, I mean, I know you've spent a lot more time in the Czech Republic than I have, and I, you know, I went around with um, with Dan Suarez and Matt Moon, the assistant brewer at Suarez, last fall, and and got a lot of history launched at me that I couldn't believe. Um, just about you know the kind of like communities that would have to bring in ice blocks to fill the cellar to keep everything cold throughout the summer. And it would just slowly melt. Just the way that they built those caves just just kind of blows my mind. I don't know. Um, I think you know nobody today is is. Uh, I feel like we're all too lazy today to be able to kind of wrap our head around that. But I, I have no idea. Like, I, yeah, maybe Chris, you probably maybe know more. But um, yeah, Jimmy, but Chris, yeah. What about your myths, Chris? Any any like when when you were at first in the Czech Republic. Were there any myths of, of the origin that you heard? I mean, origin-wise, I, I don't really I – mean, there's a lot of myths about Pilsner, you know, in terms of style and what they taste like and regionality variances and all that good stuff. And I love all that. As far as, far as like the origins of it, I mean, I always heard you – know, the myths that I don't know are true or not, and Tom can probably help me out. I always heard Pilsner was hand-in-hand hand with uh, clear glass. You know, the clear glass was, like, you know, really driving why uh, people wanted bright, bright being clear. Um, bright beer. Uh, I don't know if that's even true, but it's a story of help. There's so much in beer that has been handed down that is just basically folklore that's not true. Right. And it's so so much of it's just fun, but a lot of it's just wrong. So it's it's hard, right. you know. The the glass bit is absolutely correct, actually, and, and that's one oh, that's of the good things to hear. that sort of helped Pilsner's <laughs> rise was that you know um, people were were uh, not only drinking out of glasses, which was being mass produced for the first time in history, but were also uh, brewers were also learning to bottle and bottle consistently and bottle efficiently and cork you know cork the bottles and 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 get the bottles out the door and pasteurize them and and, and have the beer arrive in the much the same state it had left the brewery in so yeah uh, 
that's one of the things that helped Pilsner's rise is that it looked good in the glass. It looked beautiful. It looked modern. It looked downright healthy. But, but, but that's, but that, I mean, what, what, what I don't understand about that, I mean, you can make bright, clear, light colored ales. Like there's nothing about the lager yeast that would necessarily kind of lead people to, to need to ferment these things cold and long in these caves. Mm-hmm. So do you have anything kind of like specific in the history to, I don't know, ales versus lagers and why, I don't know, why bright beer was, was for lager? It was just about time. I think it was about timing and the process, but the ales that back then, the, the palest ales would have been from Northern England and they themselves would not, they, they would look kind of amorous, amber, amber-like or, or red. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't look as clear and bright as Pilsner did. The only beer style that came close on the continent at the time was Vienna lager. And Vienna, I mean, uh, Vienna lager is kind of reddish itself, reddish amber. But as far as, you know, the yeast, uh, as far as the development of lager, part of it was also an accident because, you know, the, it was born of a hybrid yeast strain. I mean, part, part of which might have been born and raised in South America and come over during the Age of Discovery, all the ships going across the Atlantic. So that's a part of it, too. There's a lot in there. And, and I think that we're, we're probably going beyond what your book covered. Um, you know, let, let's jump up. So, Chris, when you were first, you know, learning about Czech pills and everything, this is some of the, the styles that inspired you because there's so many different colors, you know, there, there's and different gravities. Yeah, I mean, I th- to me, the fascinating thing about Czech beer is that as, as someone who'd never been, I always thought, you know, Czech Republic was Pilsner, right? And, that, and, and Pilsner of itself is even, they don't even call it Pilsner, they call it pale lager, unless it comes from Pilsen. So the, there was that whole thing. And then to understand that, the way the Czechs designate beer style is not just by a name, you know, like Dunkel or Hellas. It's by gravity in Plato, you know, 10, 12, 14, and then by color, you know, light, amber, dark. So that kind of blew my mind that there was this, you know, pretty large range of styles and strengths in the Czech Republic that, you know, the U.S. beer consumer or beer geek or brewer had no idea about. And, uh, you know, that was a real kind of, fun fun thing for me to discover but then the strengths really kind of hit me too because obviously i brew session beer uh, primarily and to find out that the Sitka, which is the 10 plato czech pale lager which we would know as pilsner i mean that's basically their light beer but it's wildly flavorful and you know you can go to the the beer hall and have 10 you know over the course of an afternoon and and be pretty good um so yeah that, that was uh that was the real kind of like epiphany you know for me that 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 it wasn't this mono one Czech lager or Pilsner. It wasn't monolithic. The regional variances within Czech Republic and then to you know compare Germany, they're quite different. And then even among that, the lagers there were pretty varied. Um, but this, you know, I'm not sure why it didn't get exposure. It seems like the Czech Republic right now, especially in the craft beer scene in the last two, three, four years, has really gotten a lot of attention, um, and it's deserved because a lot of the brewers there are doing really wonderful things, and the processes that they that they implement are really cool in terms of open fermentation and the way they lager. Uh, it's, it's a really great brewing culture. I'm really glad it's getting some exposure. I mean, obviously I dig it. So. Yeah, it does. It does seem like it's a brewer driven, um, uh, you know, explosion in the States. And I know that, you know, I, I, you come to mind immediately when I think of, um, of Czech lagers in the States and like really like talking about decoction and talking about like process as a part of the style, you know, and putting it like, Kind of front and center on the can, uh, on your menu. I would I would assume. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been there, but um, it's it's almost like do you, Chris. Do you think it's like a selling point at this point? Uh, it is. For, yeah, it's you know it's really funny you say that, Matt, because during the whole you know quarantine and and going to all curbside, not having tap room sales, we put a lot of beer into cans. We never would put into cans. Mm-hmm. And when we did that, we started describing the, the process in terms of decoctions and, and how it was fermented and, you know, was it splendid? Was it, how long was it lager for? And all these kind of beer geeky things that we love as brewers that like, does the consumer care? We was like, ah, let's try it. And we started putting all the information on the labels and people started asking questions about what it meant and they got more involved with the process and they, it was fun. You know, and so I think that is uh, a selling feature to, you know, you know, a more enthusiastic consumer, which is great. We love as brewers, we love enthusiastic consumers like that, that really want to get into the detail. Yeah, and for, you know, I think for for the average consumer, I don't I don't know if it's an average consumer, but for the, the most consumers, they 
it tastes good. It's, it, they know the style and, and the alcohol content, and that's about it. But I love people like who, who want the deep dive on it. It's a lot of fun. That's great. And Matt, uh, I'm drinking right now a shilling from New Hampshire, their Alexander 10 Czech-style Pilsner. Um, so, so do you know those guys? Um, honestly, I'm about to meet them, uh, hang out with them for the first time. We've been emailing. Um, they contacted uh, me a couple months ago. And was like, we'd love to make a beer with you whenever, whenever you want. I know things are crazy right now. And um, so we've been going back and forth for a couple months. Um, we, we're selling their beer pretty actively uh, through our, our like web store shop um, and at our bar here, uh, which just opened, our backyard just opened uh, last, last weekend. Um, so things are amping up, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully for the long term. Um, but Great brewers. I mean, I, I'm really excited to go up there and taste their beer, um, hopefully from the taps, if they have anything on draft. Um, I've had the Alexander. We have Czech, Czech uh, Dark downstairs, um, uh, you know, for sale. Um, but really, really good guys. Um, super, super nerdy about lager. That's great. I, I found them at the West Side Market on 3rd Ave. Shout out to Martin Johnson, who's a great beer writer. He does the purchasing there. And it's just made my day. Big time. Um, so, Tom, back to you. So, with the book, you guys got to read it, Pilsner. It's a, it's there's a lot of history that we're not going to talk about on the show, but um, a couple points you wanted to bring up, talk about. One of them, um, it's the role of immigration in the spread of Pilsner in America. So, originally, what 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 were people drinking in America? We know they were drinking whiskey. We know they had hard cider, uh-huh. but they were also Americans were also drinking porters and ales in the early yes. 1800s. That, that's exactly right. Uh, and first of all, I just want to say as a consumer, it's fantastic to see uh, the lighter lagers and Pilsner inspired and Pilsner beers out there. It's just a fantastic array. And I really applaud the brewers doing it because as I understand it from my, my layman's perspective, it's it's not easy to get a very good Pilsner. Um, but yes, the America was very much ale country when it came to beer. And what happened beginning in the 1840s and through the rest of the century was uh, an influx of Czechs and Germans came and settled mostly in you know the upper Midwest and sort of transformed in a generation or two, not only the brewing industry in the U.S., but also the beer culture. Um, Americans were noted the world over by then for you know drinking to get drunk. Uh, whiskey was the best-selling uh, alcoholic beverage. Hard cider that was extremely strong was very popular in the Northeast. So Americans weren't uh, known for the sort of nuance when it came to drinking or the, the, or the leisure. But the Germans especially brought with them the concept of beer gardens and sort of drinking for, if not taste, if more than at least for rela- relaxation. And it was also important, too, that these uh, beer gardens and beer halls were family friendly, and that really struck, uh, uh, you know, uh, Native Amer- Americans who had been here when they arrived. That and that helped really to change the culture in all sorts of ways. And I want to get back, Jimmy, just uh, to the point earlier. We we're talking about the origin of of lighter colored beers in the nineteenth century. Another innovation I, I forgot to mention, but it's in the book, was you know the the uh, sort of evolution of roasting. Of how to roast malts, and uh, English breweries and malters were, were malsters were doing were, were roasting some of the lightest malts ever by the early 1800s, and that contributed mightily to the idea and to the development of you know lighter colored beers. And what what was the specific technological innovation that led to to pale malts? Uh, well, there was an English engineer by the name of, his name was Daniel Wheeler. And in 1818, he patented an uh, invention uh, for, more, for more uniformly roasting malts that were used in brewing. Um, before, brewers generally spread the malt on a kind of perforated floor and just lit a fire underneath from wood, coal, or coke. And, you know, the result was uh, an uneven, an, a sort of unevenness in the roasting, okay? And some roasted more deeply than others, some roasted faster. Um, and, but it, it left behind a general darkness and smokiness, okay? And, 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 you know, 
if, if you go back and look at some of the writing about beer back then, they're often described as sort of burnt. Uh, the ales are described as burnt or even scorched tasting. Um, Wheeler's invention replaced that floor kennel concept and helped people do, uh, you know, more uniform roasting and, and to the speci- to, to greater specification. And he's forgotten. And there's a lot. There's a lot of characters, and I and I hope the book brings it to brings him back to life a bit, that are forgotten in this evolution, and contributed to the beer we drink even today. You know, there it's it's not an accident that the beer market ended up as it as it has. No, it's very interesting, and and also you know in the 19th century, I mean you also mentioned um, you know Burton on Trent, the English the IPAs. I know that even into the 1890s. They were being exported into the United States, and so so there was, I think at then there was still the diversity, right? There were there were pale ales and IPAs, and there was the rise of pills. Yes, Is that correct. Yeah. Yes, and what began to happen, especially after Prohibition ended in 1933, was that Pilsner kind of swept everything before it, and beers inspired by Pilsner and beers chasing the market share that Pilsner producers had swept everything. One of the great examples, I, I think is what happened to cream ale, which, you know, had really had a heyday for a long time and had a resurgence in the 1960s and 1970s. I can remember my uncles drinking uh, Genesee cream ale in upstate New York, in those green cans and bottles. Um, but even, you know, Pilsner just sort of swept those guys aside. And especially with the rise of light beer in the 1970s, it really pushed everything aside. And, and you know, and, and, Styles such as IPA and styles such as Porter and styles that we take for granted now, uh, you know, seem doomed, as did most breweries in the country, you know. And then you have this remarkable counter reaction to that environment, you know, manifested by people like Matt and Chris and what they produce. It's just well, then, really Tom, then, then we have to start reading. Your first book, The Audacity of Hops, which is <laughs> yes. the story of the craft beer revolution. But let's go to Matt. So, Matt, you said that you wanted to work at Threes because you were inspired by the Vliet Pills. So tell us the evolution of, of the pills and lagers at Threes uh, since you've been there. Well, you know, um, I guess the, the, the big thing is that we've, we've started to ferment and age in oak, um, which started a few years back and it was kind of a happy accident. It was just an experiment that we were, we were trying. Um, and we were, you know, we were trying to make a subtle beer and really I, I love honestly just like handing somebody a glass and not telling them what's in it. Um, so pr- preferably I wouldn't even talk about the fooder when it comes to this beer. Cause I think it's um, kicking and screaming our fooder pills. I think it's just like a really nice Pilsner and it just has something different. Um, it's not meant to be super oaky. But we, you know, we have, um, I think that, you know, in the craft beer industry, there's, you know, this kind of fervent for the uh, cult of the new thing, you know, beers with marshmallows and vanilla and a bunch of different shit in them. And um, I really enjoy like kind of exploring kind of the space between these lager styles. And it's true what Chris said, like the Czech Republic is kind of the perfect example of that you can go to a bar and just have such so, so much variety. Um, and sometimes it's just a, just a technique that separates one uh, Play-Doh from the next. Um, maybe a little bit more grain, maybe longer boil. Um, but really it's just like very, very process driven and, 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 um, and really thoughtful. Um, and I think like coaxing out kind of the subtlety and the space between different, different ingredients is, is, is great. So we have a rice lager coming out in two weeks. You know, today we, canned Vliet. Last week we canned some um, Hellas, um, but pretty much weekly we have a different lager coming out. And I think it's important to show that lagers are not just one thing. They're, they can, you know, there's a lot of interesting kind of variants depending on how you, you know, yeast process, um, you know, obviously all the other ingredients, but uh, that exploration is like what, what gets me and the other brewers at three is because it is always all of us kind of coming together and deciding these things uh, gets us really excited. Um, so we, we have, you know, a lot of bloggers, you know. Cause, Matt, cause... Matt, you know, you, you, you've worked or working with some really great Pilsner brewers. Like you mentioned Dan Suarez at Suarez Family. You're going up to Schilling in New Hampshire. Um, what do you learn from these other brewers? And, and 
is are there any beers that you're making that are that anything rubs off from these guys um mostly you know when i hang out with um with dan and it was really you know he's a good friend and beyond our trip you know we we hang out a bunch and it's and matt the assistant brewer there it's just learning how to taste so it's not necessarily like a process thing it's just it's learning kind of you know about the the simplicity of the ingredients so um at this point in my my journey as a brewer, I'm you know thinking a lot about like seasoning, like salting, hops, um, you know pH, um, but really just like kind of that like that like kind of that touch note, that way that the the crispness, like the the really subtle points. Um, and I'm not always happy with our beers. Um, I don't think any brewer is, but it's like um, you know when we nerd out over lagers, it's usually talking about those things. We're not talking about you know the dry hop. Usually there isn't one, but we're like really it's much like the hop load. It's it's really just the kind of the finer points, and then and then just kind of talking about the the flavor. So um, in our beers, um, you know, I think Vleed is changed. It's constantly changing, um, and that's that's just our evolution here. Um, we're we're changing the recipe constantly and just like tweaking things, and that comes from hanging out with people and and learning and and you know tasting their beers. Um, so usually it's not like a specific process thing that they're that that Dan or um, you know really are out west like you know Freem or Heater Allen or you know all these great great lager brewers been doing it a long time. Um, it's more just like they're good tasters, you know. That's great, Matt. It's it's really great talking to you again. Um, I've really seen you rise up, and I'm, I'm very proud of you. <laughs> you're you're really becoming a leader uh, in the brewing community, um, Tom. So when when we were putting the show together. I mentioned Chris Loring at Notch, and you kind of perked up. So, as a beer lover, you you tell us about Notch Brewing and and the beers. Oh, I, well, first of all, did somebody mention Rice Lager? Yeah, Matt. Matt did. Yeah, Matt. Okay, no, I've I just never heard of that. What what is that exactly? Oh, Rice Lagers. Um, it's uh, it's a lager with with rice. Okay. <laughs> no, it, just seems uh, it, it has rice, rice in the uh, in the mash, and for our beer, Guanas Gold, is what it's called. Um, we use some Carolina Gold rice and uh-huh. spend, spend a day cooking it on the side um, before brewing with it, and it adds um, adds a really nice, um, crisp, dry uh, flavor. Really, it actually gets um, kind of surprisingly floral with mm-hmm. this rice and. Um, and it's you know rice flavor, but you know any Japanese restaurant go get get some rice uh-huh. lager while you have your sushi. Yeah, t- Tom was was that a serious question? No, it was. I, I've never I'd never heard of it before, but I knew that uh, some of the bigger brewers you, you know introduced things like rice and corn, uh, and in way back to make up for the barley they couldn't get in the United in North America versus Europe. And they caught a lot of flack for it for a long time. And I know that uh, some craft breweries have come around to embracing those ingredients, which yeah. if you think about it, were kind of traditional. Um, yeah, well, t- typically we're just looking for things that'll produce good flavor that complements the lagers. And like, you know, we have um, Echo of Nothing, our Mexican lager that has corn. And we're always looking for just typically local. The Carolina Gold stuff is we, we order. We can't get local rice from New York. Um, mm-hmm. If you know of any place, let me know. <laughs> but just things that are like flavor forward and interesting um, to do it, to take kind of tradition and, and make it our own. Right. Well, I'm actually in North Carolina right now where I grew up and I'm, I'm drinking a licensed to haze double IPA from Green Man Brewing in Asheville. Um, and it's kind of the antithesis of what uh, Chris's brewery does. Um, and, and I, I, I know about Notch because I, I live in Cambridge. I'm visiting North Carolina now, but I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I remember when Notch sort of hit the shelves. And it was such a, to me, a novel thing back then because it was session beers. and was a brewery dedicated just to session beers at a time when IPA was reaching a kind of end of history moment where it was just getting stronger and stronger and busier and busier. And here came a brewery that was like, no, we're going to do, we're going to do uh, lower alcohol sessionable brews and not, you know, wallop you with a lot of bitterness at the, at the first sip. And I, I was just, I was a big fan right away of the Pilsner long before I had the idea for the book. That's great. Hey, so that's a great, we're going to take a short break here. We'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio. All right. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by HH Bespoke Spirits, a fashionable portfolio of unique spirits, including bespoke gin, rum, and vodka. The family behind the award-winning boutique and clothing brand Harlem Haberdashery has expanded to distill spirits inspired by the rich cultural history and distinctive style of the Harlem Renaissance. The black and family-owned HH Bespoke Spirits are available at bars, restaurants, and retailers across the United States. Learn more at hhbespokespirits.com and follow them at hhbespokespirit. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking the new book, Pilsner, but with Tom Acatelli, the author, and Chris Loring of Notch Brewing, and Matt Levy of Threes Brewing in Brooklyn. Um, and just check it out, heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member and donate. heritageradionetwork.org. So, uh, Tom, you were just talking about uh, when you first discovered Notch Brewing in Salem. And Chris, Chris, my big question is... Um, how do you, you have different beers, you have Session Ales, and you have your Czech Lagers. Um, what part of the brewery is dedicated to the Czech Lagers? Uh, is there anything different about that process? Um, just tell us a little bit about, about how you're running a brewery that, that has that specialty, as well as your regular beers. I, I guess the, there's some subtle differences in, in how we do it, and it starts in the brew house. But we'll do, uh, so we typically do Czech, mostly Czech lagers. We do some German lagers. We do some continental styles like Kolsch and all. Um, and then we do a number of uh, hazy New England style, you know, session or non-session IPAs so that we have the ability to do what we want. <laughs> they pay the bills. <laughs> um, so, you know, the I, I always joke that the IPA brew day is pretty friggin' easy. It's a sing, you know, it's a single temperature infusion, and you're you're pretty much done in five and a half hours minus CIP. And the, the so the lager brewing really is when things get you know ramped up when we get the minutia. And so we have a decoction capable brew house where we can do multiple decoctions. We can do single, double, triple. Uh, we can also do cereal mashing if we want to do a rice lager or we want to do a cream ale, um, and then. You know, from there we do um, most of our, all of our Czech lagers and, and most of our kind of Bomberg uh, Franconian styles are open fermented. Um, and then none of our ales are really open fermented. Uh, we don't really do British beer, so it doesn't really, you know, fit into that. Most of our, our ales just go into a unitank, closed right away. Um, uh, and, and, and the rest of the process kind of is pretty straight, straightforward. But with the lagers, we go open fermentation. It's kind of like um, uh, they use a tank in, in Germany uh, where they want the trube or the, uh, the cold break not to be uh, consumed with or, or mingled with fermentation. Uh, it's called a flotation tank. But when you do open fermentation, it kind of acts as a flotation tank in a way because that's all caught within the Kreuzen. It's kind of interesting, Tom, hearing about top fermenting versus bottom fermenting. Because my first 10 years, I did all open ver- fermentation with British ale yeast. And when I do, when I do lager fermentation, behaves almost the exact same way. The Kreuzen looks exactly the same. And so I think there's a myth about top and bottom fermentation. I think it's cold and warm fermentation. Uh, I'm kind of convinced of it. I'm really convinced of it. And if I, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't have any scientific proof or, you know, other than just, you know, empirical observation. So anyways, we do, we do open fermentation. Um, uh, we spun. So we take it out of the open fermenter about half gravity. We put it into a close. We spun so that we bung the tank and capture natural carbonation. Um, and then, uh, we bring into horizontal lagering tanks, uh, for maturation. And so, you know, none of the ales really go through those processes. Um, and so, so it's just, it's just a different, basically thread, if you will. It's, it's, um, just thinking about it differently, uh, in the way we do it. And then the way we package the beer as well, sometimes is different as well. We, we do stitch fast, which are the German gravity casks, uh, for a lot of our beer. Uh, so there's no extraneous CO2 pushing the beer out through a tap. It's just basically coming out through gravity. Um. Yeah, so it just you know yeah you put your your lager brewer kind of boots on and, and, and go at it and it's just different than ale brewing. And Chris, that that brings up something. So you know due to COVID and you're probably selling a lot. I don't know how your tap sales are, but for me the the big thrill of going to your tap room was uh, tasting your beer out of your check you know your check pours. Um, how are your beers different in a can versus out of the taps? I mean the beers themselves are the same. It's basically 
you know, we've split off of a, off a lagering tank to draft or cans. So it's the same beer, same carbonation levels. Uh, oh, there's some variance there. If we do a half, we do a higher car- carbonation, but, uh, uh, for the draft, but, uh, the experience is different, right? You go to, you go to the, the beer hall or you come to notch and you get that in a half liter check mug with three fingers, four fingers of dense, dense, wet foam that you need to drink through. And that can't be recreated out of the can. It just can't, you can't get that same density of foam without that lucre, t- uh, tap. Um, so yeah, you do lose that a little bit, but the flavor of the beer is the same, but that experience of drinking through that foam is something that's pretty unique to the Czech Republic and pretty wonderful, much different than the slow pour pills, which is a whole other kind of, you know, German thing. Um, and I'm sure that, I don't know if you can rec- recreate that out of the can as well, but there's, yeah. So you, you do lose a little bit of that experience. Even here, you know, today we're, we're pouring out of plastic so that we don't have to have, tr- we just, you know, transmission issues in terms of returning glassware and employees touching and whatnot. So we do plastic right now one way. And I hate that. I mean, I hate the experience of that. And we're trying to pour the check taps in the plastic cups and it's just a shit show. You know, it really is it's not what we want to do, but we're doing the best we can based on the circumstances. Yeah, man. And that, and that brings us now back to the book with Tom. So the, the book opens, you're talking about this, the bombing in 1945 of the burger brewery in Pilsen. But um, let, let, let's just tell us that story and why that was such a focal point uh, of your book. The quote you have, it, it was from the burgers of the, the, I guess, the, the guys that ran the town of Pilsen, right, in Czechoslovakia in, like, 1830s. It says, yes. we, we must have good and cheap beer. Exactly. They, they had the right to brew and sell beer locally. And basically they were upset over the market share that these lager brewers in Bavaria over the internet, which was then, it still is, but was an international border. They were coming in and taking their market share basically. So Pilsner was spawned largely just through market competition. They, the brewers in Pilsen, the, the, the burgers who had the brewing rights did not like this competition. So they were going to co-opt it. They were going to hire Bavarian talent they were going to use Bavarian techniques and they were going to use Bavarian approaches and try to make their own lager to appeal to the locals and keep, you know, keep that market share. That's great. So, I mean, Matt, as a brewer, how do you imagine this big, sh- I still want to go back to the history because this, there's a lot more to this book, but can you imagine if you only had like some type of ales that were made with uh, locally roasted malts and suddenly somebody was selling a decent lager that had a little more technology behind it. And this is like 1830s. I don't know if you can imagine this. Yeah. Uh, I'm sitting in an office that's like 100 degrees right now. Um, and it would, it would probably be pretty freaking good. I mean, um, I mean, I, you know, what, probably one of my favorite beers of all time is, is um, – from uh, Spetzal and Bemberg, and that's a smoked beer. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of torn on it, but I, lo- I love the. Yeah, I hear you, Jimmy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I love. I have this romantic image image of the of the pre technology beers because it, it seems like Pilsner and your book, Tom. It, it talks about things like you know the invention of uh, measuring instruments like sacometers and even thermometers to measure. I know that was all late. 1700s and then of course refrigeration and and steam power for 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 transport and export but i remember it was like a number of years ago in the new york times magazine it said there was this like uh, photo essay on what breakfast was and like in the 20th century it was everything was packaged it, 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 it was like packaged and processed food. And then like back to the 19th century, the first innovation was packaging, which implied there was transportation. But like it was like the 1820 breakfast was like the leftover piece of meat and a leftover piece of pie. <laughs> and I remember thinking, man, that's what I like. And one time I asked Garrett Oliver, I, I said, you know, how does that relate to beer? And ultimately he just talked about the, the, the change in technology. So... Um, and we've tried over the years. To, to, there's always someone that, that's making historical beer or something. But I, I just wonder if that resonates with anybody uh, before we move on to the next subject. Yeah, uh, I mean, no, I, yeah. Uh, I, I would just 
just going to say quickly, like for sure, it's been, it's been pretty depressing um, during COVID um, not to have our tap room open and have, have people here at the source, you know, putting everything in cans, sending it out to grocery stores. It's all kind of within the state, but it's, you know, mostly a uh, tri-state area, but it's still that, that, ex- that localized experience that you, you get, you know, biking around Franconia and going from town to town, each town had a brewery and like, you know, you just go and have the thing straight from the tap. It's usually one, one type and it's really fresh and, and, and usually pretty good, but it, it's hard to, it's hard for me to re recreate that. Um, uh, or I can't recreate that without the tap room, but that that's the closest thing. And I, I love the fact that we have multiple tap rooms that we can have that connection to people and pour it right and serve it. Right. Uh, it's, it's, this is the, these are tough times, um, but we're, we're all kind of getting by, you know, <laughs> these are the, the least of it, I guess. No, for sure. And then Matt, you had said earlier that um, you were inspired by the Vliet Pilsner at threes, but now you have a, a Hellas out. So tell us about, what brewing that was like and, and how you guys as a brewery decided to, to make that version of a lager. Um, yeah, I, that was something I personally just really wanted to do. And I kind of sat the brewers down and I told them, um, you know, we're going to, this year we're going to make a house and we're going to, it's going to be tap room only. We're not going to send it out at all. It'll be draft only. And, you know, we'll, we're going to dedicate this tank to Hellas. It'll go from here to the bright tank. and We're going to make it once a month and rotate it with our lager yeast which is always part of the equation, just ingredient management. And I told them, I was like, if we, if we have a great Hellas in, um, in six months, then that's a win. You know, this is like, let's play the long game with this and like really enjoy the process of tweaking and, and changing. And uh, it was, it's been really fun. So I think it was one of those kind of challenges of making something subtle that had that like, you know, that really light kiss of honey and all that malt flavor without, without too much hop character, um, which is, which is then honestly branched off to other beers. We've, we've really stripped back most of our lagers because of how much we like that beer. Um, it's really, it's one of our favorite beers we make right now, for sure. I mean, Matt, you guys are, have a very tight brewery. How do you guys balance, you know, producing ales, IPAs and things as well as lagers? Um, yeah, we also have like a lot of barrels and a, we're bottling once a week right now with all the mixed culture stuff. I, honestly, we have a lot of tanks. We have like 14 fermenters. So it helps, helps let things sit. I really wish we had a different setup. Um, and I'm grateful for what we have, but I, I do wish that we had the horizontals and we had just, you know, the open fermenter would be incredible for, for those types of beers, for Czech beers, um, which I'd like to make more of. We actually just started doing that a couple months ago. And, um, but our, we're limited by our equipment and I don't want to force it because we don't, we don't have the ability to decoct and we don't have the ability to, you know, do some of the, all, all the things I, I've, you know, one of our brewers, Joel has visited Notch and it's just like, he like kind of marvels at like the, the equipment there of what you have, Chris. Um, and we really have to coax it out with like, we have really good water here. It's super soft and we can just kind of like from there, we can start, start soft and kind of add touches here and there, but. We have a lot of fermenters. We let things sit um, for six to eight weeks. We lose a lot of money. Um, you know, it's not it's not easy doing. It doesn't make a lot of sense making as much lager as we make in New York City. Uh, part of the reason why we partnered with Industrial Arts to make some lager up there it was it was necessary. It was like we either start doing a ton of IPA as a business, or or we figure out how to do this, and we we kind of like I go up there once a week, and it's. So you do the best you can, but lagers are expensive to make. They, they, you know, they take, you know, for us six, six weeks or so, typically six to eight weeks. And it's, it's, um, it's a labor of love for sure. And I, I wouldn't do this job if, if we were just making, um, beers we didn't like. Yeah, no, that's, thank you, Matt. And that, and Tom, so back to the book, um, you know, as Pilsner grew in America, you said that it, it led to the growth of advertising. Yes. But that gets to your point, Jimmy, that you made you made earlier. I think one of the reasons we're where we are in the beer world is because Pilsner was so popular and became so popular and so imitated. I mean, in the book, I call it kind of the yesterday of beers because it's so heavily covered. But uh, I think that's what spawned the craft beer movement and got people to to sort of pine for and want what what the rise of Pilsner had had done away with. You know, and so 
one of the, one of the points I make is that by about the 1950s and certainly by the early 1970s with the rise of light beer, most of the macro producers had settled on their recipes and, how, and their approaches to brewing. And any big changes to the beer were happening after it left the brewery. And that came in marketing and advertising, right? And so Pilsner has a profound effect on the, the modern advertising industry. You know, the uh, Peels Brewery, the old Peels Brewery out of Brooklyn, New York, which went out of business, I believe, in the mid-60s, uh, created the first soft sell campaign with uh, uh, the, uh, the Burton Harry uh, cartoons. I don't know if any, any listeners are familiar with it, but uh, these were extremely popular. It was an extremely popular advertising campaign and commercial, but it, it sold basically the characters and not necessarily Peel's beer. They were characters who liked Peel's, but um, the emphasis was on them rather than the product. And it was to the point where people were writing fan were writing fan letters to these characters. So uh, I, I just think that that aspect sort of just sort of rammed this one style into the marketplace to the point where there was this massive reaction to it, and that's you know where we are now. That's craft beer. Well, I'm lo- I'm looking forward to finishing the book. I I recommend it to everyone. It, it just did it just go on sale recently, Tom? Yeah, it came out last week, early August. And you probably you have a lot of appearances lined up. Yes, I, I'm in the midst of it, but I, I'm really enjoying this because I, I am fans of the the two brewers you have on right now. So, and of and of you, Jimmy, of course. Well, thanks. <laughs> so, how about Chris? Uh, you want to? Did you get to look at the book at all? No, I tried to order it when I knew I was coming on, and and it was was uh, it was in pre order, so I haven't had a chance to. I, I'm really looking forward to reading it, but no, I, I haven't you. seen it yet. And uh, you know the 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 thing that's cool about this, Tom, is that you know when you wrote the Audacity of Hop, which I think every listener should still read, um, especially the early days of of craft beer in America, you you really you really hit it on on the nail. Thank you. And. Um, that was and still might be my favorite book about about craft beer. Um, Steve Hindy wrote wrote a great one as well, a craft beer revolution. But again, that was about his era. So you guys kind of covered different eras uh, really well. So like, I don't want to talk about you know prohibition and the rise of macro uh-huh. because I don't like to talk about that. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna ask you one more thing. Back to these innovations and and turmoil. I think the 1840s. Seems to be a very cool time in your book, and in this origins of you know Czech lagers and pills, and everything. So how were the Bavarian? If the Bavarians already had, they were making different types of lagers. They learned newer technology from the British by the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. They were making the best beer in the world. They had technology. They had had their history of Rheinhofer boats. So they were using best ingredients. Um, how, how would you compare then or, or now, you know, the Bavarian beers to, to the Czech beers? Cause they, they, they are, they are different. You know, they they seem to be distinctly different. You mean back then? Back then or now? Well, back then, uh, the, the, the Bavarian beers were, were darker in color and maybe a little bit maltier, but they, they were more consistent in, in their lightness and in their light, light taste than pretty much any beer out there. Uh, what happened in Pilsen, you know, in 1842 is kind of, I don't want to overstate it, but it was almost kind of a miracle of everything coming together. Even if you had changed something like the water, it would have been a different product and had a different effect. So they took, the, what happened in Pilsen just sort of took what the Bavarians were doing one step further. But there was this evolution, you know, you've noted the, the English techniques that found, its, found their ways to Bavaria and Austria. Uh, you know, it, 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 there was an evolution, and Pilsen was the next step in that evolution. Well, that's great, man. Anybody else want to say anything else before we wrap it up? Yeah, I have, I have one, one thing for Chris. I have one thing for Matt, so here we go. <laughs> this is what I want. This is I'm, what it's all about, kids. Just stick around. Uh, well, um, so for you, uh, you, you, oh man, now I'm really curious about what you're going to say. I've, 
<laughs> but you said you, how much do you think your, your um, history of, of British brewing um, helps with, with Czech brewing and connects? Um, and I was, you know, probably my, my favorite beer experience ever was in the caves at um, Pilsner or Kell um, out, of, uh, out of the barrel there, out of the pitch barrel. And I was, I was just kind of blown away at how much it, it reminded me of like English bitter. Um, and it seems to me like, you know, as humans, we make up these styles and we can talk about Pilsner and, you know, it's important to have parameters, but they do kind of come in and out and they, they're, they're, they're a little bit, um, I don't know, constantly changing and, and moving. Um, and, uh, curious about how much like British brewing connects to you for Czech brewing and like that focus on malt and bitterness, um, and, and hopping. Matt, that's, that's really, I, I that's great. I, I, the service, the start of the service first and back into the, the to the, maybe the brewing, but you know, the, the, the parallels between British cask beer, you know, which, you know, gravity or, or off of, off the hand pump or, or beer engine, and then uh, Bavarian or uh, Czech, you know, basically gravity dispense where there's no extraneous CO2 pushing that beer out. It may not be cask conditioned, but it is definitely, it, it it's being dispensed by gravity. Those beers are different, man. They, they, they just behave differently. They they have they're um, affected by a slight warm, warming temperature by a couple of degrees for the lagers, more so for the ales. The it's softer. Um, you get the nuance of it more. And you know, I don't want to poo-poo a like draft beer, but draft beer with extraneous CO two at the coldest temperatures to make sure you serve it without CO two breaking out a solution. I mean, there's limitations with that. So yeah, there's, there's definitely parallels between those two things. And I think then, if you think back to what I just talked about with open fermentation, I think the reason I don't get freaked out by open fermentation is because I did it with British Brewing for 10 years. And it's like, yeah, we do open fermentation. Right? Um, and seeing the yeast work, you know, you walk in the next day and there's a brewery, like you get the visual. You get, instead of looking at a bucket and seeing if there's CO2, you know, pour, you're bubbling out of it, you open the lid and like, hey, we have yeast activity. You know, that's, you're getting really in, involved with, with, with that. And that's always, always to me really fun. Um, yeah, and then bitter versus pilsner. There's a lot of parallels there. You know, the, the malt components are different in terms of the color and sweetness. But um, yeah, it's more about the relationship of bitterness and and and, uh, and malt and and dryness versus you know aromatics and you know sweetness, uh, aromatics and you know sweet flavors or aromas. So yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels there. I, I, it, as much of those seem like distinct styles, you know. So yeah, I think there's mm -hmm. there's a lot there's a lot there. So I have a question for you. Okay. <laughs> so often, often when one says they like a certain direction or they're doing something, that is viewed as being uh, either uh, having an, an attitude or opinion about something that it's not. And I've been criticized by talking about I'm doing this pitch line barrel project where we put pitch into a barrel like they do at Pilsner and Raquel and, yeah, yeah. and, and age the beer in pitch because I want that pitch to have influence over the final product. Mm -hmm. And when I talked about this, I said how beer never touched wood in, <laughs> in, in the Czech Republic or in, in Bavaria. There were some prominent brewers in the world who thought I was calling them out for doing for putting beer into raw wood or in, or into toasted wood or, or food, right? And I wasn't doing that. I was just talking about what I was doing and what I was trying to achieve. So I've had some food beers that are wonderful. I mean, they're really great. Um, you know, there's just some, some uh, uh, local brewers that are, that are doing that, that I really, I, I've had them and like, these are really cool. There's just something here, right? So what do you, and my question has been with this, like, what, what, what's the goal? What are you guys trying to achieve by putting that beer into a fooder or into in, in, into contact with wood, like what is there a goal, or are you just trying to see what what the result is? Um, so so the story goes like this: we we um, we had a new fooder, and we had already filled one with with the saison, which is now wandering vine, and it's it. We were kind of we felt like the 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 fooder was too intense. So our hope was if we fill it with a lager, then we can strip out some wood that's honestly excessive for our palates and you know we'll 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 ferment it cold we'll pull it quickly maybe a month and then we'll put a saison in there and we sat in the backyard after you know after that first batch came out and i had all the ingredients lined up for a spelt saison and i had all this lactobacillus and breton house and we sat together and we drank it and we were like fuck no we're not infecting this thing we're going to keep it clean as long as possible it is purely flavor, uh, uh, you know, 
flavor focused. Um, and you know, it's, it's, we, we hop it less. So I don't know, kind of treat it as a hop as like another kind of essence. It, it adds some creaminess. It really softens hop character. So typically huh. Pilsners are pretty crisp and, and kind of sharp. And all of our fooder lagers are just so much creamier. Um, and it adds depth. And honestly, I, I hate, I hate to say it, but I, I, generally don't really like them. I have them from a lot of breweries and I find that they're just like woody and weird. There, I have had a few that I like, but I'm not like, you know, I try not to think too much about styles. I really try to just drink a beer and do I enjoy this? Do the flavors come together? Does it work? Um, and, you know, I really like it. I really like how we do it. And it's unfortunate that it changes. Like the fooder, and that, that's also kind of fun, but like the first batch is very different from the third batch. I still remember our third batch through that fooder was my favorite. And we actually just got a new one in and uh, sent the old one back to fooder crafters um, because over time it, 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 you know, kind of gets depleted. So it's not a great like long-term business plan. It's actually a terrible idea if you want to like make a brand, but um, you know, we, we do, we did two beers through it. It was short fuse, which is our fooder for minutes motelis. It was, you know, a nine and a half Play-Doh beer with some smoke, really light in color that was in there for three weeks. And then we have kicking and screaming that's in there for, four to six weeks, depending on the flavor. And it's really, it's just some subtle wood character. Like I really would prefer not to tell people. A lot of people on our untapped, like, are like, it doesn't taste woody enough or it's not, I don't taste Ugh. the fooder. And I'm like, okay, that's actually kind of fine. You know, it doesn't, do you like the beer? Like that's all that matters. <laughs> so um, the biggest thing is that it, it softens hop character and adds flavor, which we get as like kind of toasted marshmallow. Um, and um, I really, really like it. Um, it's like one of those beers that I could have like a four pack out in the yard easily. Um, I'd, lo- I'd really love to try it. Yeah, I'll like, happy to I'd send love to try it. So I, I've been fortunate because, uh, you know, being in a taproom brewery environment and you, ha- you experience this as well, beer shows up and you get to drink a lot of beer from, you know, friends or just, you know, from brewers. And I, a lot of your beer shows up at our brewery. I just walk in the walk in on like a Monday, it's like, there's beer from you guys. <laughs> Someone gifted oh, it to funny. us. So I, I've had a fair, I've had a fair number of your beers and I've really enjoyed them. Oh, thank you. I wish I've had, I wish I had more of yours. I have had some, we, we were crushing a Kolsch um, and an Amber recently. It was, that's, that's actually, I messaged you and was like, can you send me some beer? Guys need it. These are tough times, man. We need your lockers. Um, no, no, just, just going to say that the, you know, the, the fooder thing is just, I don't know if we're going to keep doing it. It's, it really is just something that we're enjoying doing right now. And, and I, I think it's rare for me. There are sometimes I have a beer and I'm like, oh, there's like an aha moment. And you're like, wow, this is kind of different. And there's something to this. It's weird, but good. And this one did it for, for all of us, honestly. It's kind of unanimous. So, um, yeah. Well, I'll say, Matt, at, when you drive up to Schilling in Littlefield, New Hampshire this weekend, on your way back, you should just swing into Salem, Massachusetts and, and, and see Chris. But also, oh, last thing about your kicking and screaming the fooder. Years ago, I first had it on draft at my old pub, Jimmy's number 43. And I never thought of oak or wood. I just saw food or pills. So I actually thought it was just going to be a little funky. I never expected a lot of wood. Um, so to me, it always came off right. Like I, I wouldn't drink it every day, but it, it, I never expected it to be woody. So that, that's, that's a, we have a lot, we could keep going for a long time, but I really appreciate everyone coming on. And Tom Acatelli, thank you so much uh, for thank writing you. another really great book about beer. Um, I said, I'm, I'm up to 1845. <laughs> so I'm, I want to keep going and I highly recommend it. Thank and you. Uh, Chris Loring at Notch Brewing and Matt Levy, at threes this has been a really great uh, focused conversation and just i want to say thanks again to everybody and big shout out to our producer dylan hoyer head engineer matt patterson i'm jimmy carboni thanks for joining us on the heritage rate on heritage radio network have a great one see you next time on beer sessions radio all right Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.